Would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 15? While you're doing that, let me bring you greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be back with you again today. Thank God for you and your friendship, for your pastor, and for the many years of conversation and friendship and encouragement that he has given to me. We're really thankful. So we ask that the Lord would bless us. My title this morning is, Who is This Man? And I want to ask that question with regard to Psalm 15. So please follow along as I read it in your hearing, then we'll pray, then we'll begin to expound the psalm. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Holy, eternal, undivided Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bow before you having sung your praises and asking you now to do that which you promised to do, to draw near to your people as your word is proclaimed. We ask that by the Spirit we would hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our understanding will be enlivened, that our faith will be deepened, that our walk before you will be strengthened. We pray that you will be glorified in all that is said and done. Help me to express the truth to your people appropriately and come upon us so that we might hear your holy word. We ask these things in the name of our great intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin suggests a possible occasion and setting for its composition. He surmises that perhaps David watched as throngs of Israelites approached the tabernacle of God, knowing that many were hypocrites and that others were genuine followers of the Lord, he poses the question that is found in verse 1. You see, David knew that not all Israel were true Israel. Even though they were all by birth members of the covenant community, many, in fact, were covenant breakers. Their lips spoke of the Lord their bodies performed all the necessary and appropriate actions toward the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And so David contemplates these questions. Who is it that rightly approaches God? My outline is very simple this morning. I want to ask the question. Then I want to notice how David provides an answer to us. Then I want to give an interpretation of the psalm. And finally, apply it to our hearts. So the question, the answer, the interpretation, and the application. 
Well, let's then look at Psalm 15 more closely. By the way, let me say this will be the fastest trip through Psalm 15 that you will ever have. We will be going through it rapidly. But we notice in verse 1 the question. Let's read it again. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? This is straightforward enough, but it's an important question to ask and to consider its significance. Now, this is typical Hebrew parallelism in poetry in which an idea is repeated twice, although repeated in different terms, so that the second time it appears, some more information is added to it. Let's take a look at this. The first word that you may see in your Bible is the word Lord. Now notice how it's printed in our English Bibles. Probably in yours it's the same way it is in mine, with all uppercase letters, L-O-R-D. That's an indication that our translators use, they provide to us, so that we can tell what Hebrew word is in the background. When you see the word Lord in the Old Testament printed in this way, it tells us that the name for God is being used. The old way it was said in English is Jehovah. Now more often we say Yahweh, but that's the word that is used. The name by which he, is, he reveals himself to his people in covenant, a name by which he is unknown to the nations. So this is a word of faith with which we begin the psalm. Lord, God, covenant keeper, faithful God, who is it? Now I can imagine David surveying the multitudes as they climb the hill to come to the tabernacle of God, he's asking the question, which person? Is it that man? Is it that woman? Is it anyone in that grouping? Lord, God of Israel, who is it that has the right to ascend to your holy hill? Who among the multitudes can come before you and worship? So, Lord, who may abide? Now, to abide is a verb that means to take up permanent residency, to come and live there. I'm a visitor in your midst today. God willing, I'll be headed for home later on this evening. I've got meetings that I have to attend tomorrow morning. But you live here. This is your dwelling place. This is where you abide. David is asking that kind of question. Who is it that may come to the tabernacle of God and take up permanent residency? Remember, the temple hasn't been built yet. That waited for Solomon, David's son. But the tabernacle was the symbolic dwelling place of God on earth. It was a tent, a movable tent, that was pitched among the nation. But it symbolized to them the fact that God was their God and that he dwelt among them. And so David, as he watches the people ascend the hill, is asking this question. Lord, who is it that may live in your presence? Who may approach you and stay? by approaching you. That's the essence of the question. Now, the second line of verse 1 is the, a similar idea, though with different expressions. Now, in my translation, I'm using the NKJV, the New King James Version. David switches verbs, and he asks, who may dwell? That's the functional equivalent of abide. Who is it that can take up residence? Now, not in the tabernacle, but rather on your holy hill, on Mount Zion, the place where God dwells symbolically. You, you ever notice in the Old Testament how God claims the mountaintop for himself? 
In fact, one of the reasons that the sins of many of the kings, even the best kings, you'll read about them, uh, so-and-so was a good king, except he failed to remove the high places. The reason that that was so bad is that God claimed the high places for himself. And when a pagan deity was worshipped on a high place, that was an affront and an assault upon God himself. And the kings ought to have removed those things from the high places where the idols lived. That's the idea that David has here. The tabernacle was to occupy a high place because that's where God claimed his dwelling place and that's where people would go. God dwells here and so David asks the question, who may take up residence with you? Now, do you agree with me that this is an urgent question? Really, it's significant that David is asking this. He sees the place where God symbolically dwells among his people. He sees all of the people who are walking up the pathway on the hill to go there. And he asks, who is it? Not just to go there, but who is it that has the right to stay there? Because it separates the true followers from the hypocrites. Dwelling or abiding is very different from visiting or appearing at a place for effect. There are people who go to church so that other people see them. They don't go to worship God. There were those among the Israelites who went outwardly to demonstrate to others that they were religious, but they had no desire to meet with God at this place. You see, David knew that there were some who only did this, and so he contemplates. Who is it that may abide? Who is it that may dwell in your holy hill? Simple question, straightforward, but very important question, which leads then to the answer found in verses 2 through 5. Most of the rest of the psalm is taken up with the answer. Who may abide? Who may dwell? His contemplation brings answers. Some of them are positive, characteristics about people that are present in their lives. Some of them are negative, that is, things that ought to be absent from their lives. But David thinks in these terms, and there is a pattern. He begins by speaking about positives, then negatives, then he returns to positives, and he returns to negatives, all of them leading to a conclusion. So let's walk through this very quickly and notice what David says. The question is, who may dwell on your holy hill? I ask the question, who is this man? Who is it that can do this? Well, the first thing we notice, the first positive answer is in verse 2, where David speaks of actions. Notice the verbs. He who walks uprightly, he who works righteousness, he who speaks the truth in his heart. Walk, work, and speak. Now, most of you, perhaps all of you, are familiar with this kind of language from the Bible. When the word walk is used, it is a description of lifestyle. It's not simply the movement from place A to place B, but it's a metaphor that is used to describe the way that a person carries out his life. And David says, the one who may come is the one who walks, whose lifestyle is upright. That is, lifestyle characterized by holiness and by integrity. That's what qualifies this person to come to God's holy hill. But he follows this up with the word work the one who does, the one whose actions can be determined to be righteous. And let's give righteousness, or um, let's give righteousness its full meaning here. David intends works or deeds that are pleasing and acceptable to God. 
The one who works righteousness is the one who does that which God himself has commanded and which pleases God himself. This one qualifies to dwell in God's presence. The third thing that we notice is that this one speaks the truth in his heart. The, the, that which is in the heart is the fruit of, the fruit of his lips is that which is in the heart. Now Calvin summarizes this very well when he says this. To speak in the heart is a strong figurative expression, but it expresses more forcibly David's meaning than if he had, than if he had said, from the heart. It denotes such agreement and harmony between the heart and the tongue as that the speech is, as it were, a vivid representation of the hidden affection or feeling within. That is, the words that come forth from the lips are words that reflect the truth that is in the heart. That's the point that is being made here. So he walks and he works and he speaks and it's all about righteousness, holiness, truth, integrity, those kinds of things. That's where David begins. That's the man who may qualify to live in God's presence. But there's more. Because this leads him immediately in verse 3 to present us with the first negative. In fact, the, the beginning of verse 3 picks up the idea from the end of verse 2, the idea of speech. The one who can stand in God's presence or dwell in God's presence is the one who speaks truth with his heart and he doesn't backbite with his tongue. The contrast is very clear because the one suggests the other and helps to define the other. The one who may dwell in God's holy presence will only speak the truth with regard to his neighbor. One may speak kindly to the face of another while despising him with the heart, and then speak against him in his absence. That's possible to do because you want to impress someone. And someone comes along, and while he's there with you, you say nice things to him, and then he walks down the hall and turns the corner, and you talk to the person next to you, and you say, he's not really like that. Let me tell you what he's really like. And you say, you say bad things about the individual. David says, he doesn't do this. He speaks the truth. Verses, or the, the second and third part carry out this thought. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. That is, he does not act against his neighbor in any sinful way. And he does not take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't allow uh, the, the gossip that he receives about his friend to influence him. He won't take up that issue because he trusts and he loves his friend. You know, really what David is doing here is giving us a very brief summary of the second great commandment. He says, the one who may dwell in God's presence is the one who loves his neighbor as himself. In his speech and in his actions, he loves another. He keeps God's law in that way. This leads, I told you this is going to be rapid. This leads to the second positive in verse 4. And this one is a little bit surprising if you stop to think about it. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now, if you were to list out the qualifications of someone who would be able to dwell in the presence of God, would despising someone be one of the things that would immediately come to your mind? I think that that's actually surprising. But that's what David says. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. And he says this in contrast to the next line. Look at it again. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. These need to be understood together. This one who may dwell in God's presence is a discerning person who is able to distinguish between people, and he despises some to the glory of God. That's a right action. He despises some while he honors others. But the deciding factor is God himself. And it's how these people walk toward God. Do they show any love for, obedience to, the triune God of heaven and earth, or are they servants of the evil one and follow after him? You know, in essence, here is the first great commandment. To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, following upon loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the point that David is making. And the despising and the honoring has to do with how that person relates to the Lord God. You can see this in the Gospels, can't you? In the life of the Lord Jesus, in the way that he treated the scribes and the Pharisees who were hindering people from coming to the, to the truth, and yet how he was willing to love taxpayers and sinners because they wanted to hear him and God was about to grant them faith. The way that Jesus treated them is very different. The third part of um, verse 4 picks up again the relationship between heart and word. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This one who may dwell in the presence of God, who lives in the Lord's house, keeps his word so that when he swears or promises or vows, when he takes an oath, he follows through even when it means that he hurts himself. He's given his word. He's a man of his word. And he will do what it takes to fulfill his word, even if it means difficulty for himself in his own life. That's what righteousness is about in this case. And this leads us to the second negative in verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Verse 5, interestingly, describes the man's use of his money. And it does so in terms of the abuse of the poor. Now, your translation, if you're using the ESV, says interest. Most of the older translations use that word usury, which we don't use very often any longer. So you might ask the question, what is usury? Usury is taking advantage of others by excessive rates of interest or other means of financial gain. Effectively, keeping the poor in poverty by abuse of financial relations. That's what David is thinking of here. I like the word usury better than the word interest because using the word interest seems to say that if you have a bank account that gives you 2% on your money, somehow you're violating God's law. That's not at all the point. The point is using your money to take advantage of others and deepen your own wealth. And user, that's what usury means. That's what David has in mind. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, not only does this man not practice those things, but he also won't take a bribe. He, won't use, he can't be bought for the sake of lies because what does a bribe do? It oppresses the innocent and it protects the guilty from deserved punishment. When the man gives testimony in a court, for example, and he's received a bribe to tell that which is not true, to tell a falsehood, 
He's harming the innocent and he's protecting the guilty from deserved punishment. And David says, this man who may dwell in the presence of God will not do that. When I read these words, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, a, a, a verse that's frequently misquoted. Usually we hear, money is the root of all evil. That's not what Paul says. You know what he says? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because it's, it's not the, the physical commodity, but rather it's the affection of the heart that's given over to that money that leads to all kinds of evils, in this case bribery and much worse. It's saying, I want more for myself, I won't let you have it, even if I have to walk over you, I will take what you have so that I can increase my position in life. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And, and that's what David says. He won't use his money in usury. He won't take a bribe against the innocent. All of this leading to a conclusion at the end of verse 5. Notice the last line. He who does these things shall never be moved. The one who does these things shall remain in the Lord's presence forever. Because the Lord cannot be moved so those who do these things will not be moved. Well, let's try to interpret Psalm 15. It's a high standard, isn't it? And I ask the question, what should we make of Psalm 15? Now, don't answer out loud, but let me, let me ask you a question. And I think I know what your answer is going to be. Does this psalm encourage you? I will be honest with you, it doesn't encourage me. In fact, what it does, it slays me. It drives me down. Because if I apply it carefully to myself, and if you apply it carefully to yourself, in all honesty, if we ask the question, do I or do you qualify to dwell in God's holy hill, there's only one answer we can give. And the answer is no. No. I cannot meet this standard. It's not anything that I can do, I can't, satisfy what Psalm 15 is about. Now, at this point, I want to depart from what I call the traditional interpretation of Psalm 15. The traditional interpretation of Psalm 15, which is sometimes based on a false ecclesiology that presents this psalm as a means of distinguishing between the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the tares in the church... I want to argue that that's faulty. It sees the visible church as a mixture of the two, and within the visible church there is an invisible church, the true church, which consists only of those who are described in the psalm. It'll say, hypocrites live one way, the faithful live another, and I'll tell you what, this is clearly the majority position. If you go home today and take out a commentary on the book of Psalms, probably that's what you will find. This is about hypocrisy in the church. Those who live one way, they're clearly outside. Those who live the other way, they belong to God. Case closed. But I want to disagree with that. I think that that's a false interpretation. It might be the easiest. It might be the simplest. It might be the way that we can read it, obviously, from the text. But I think that it's incorrect. Let me, let me explain to you why I think that it's incorrect. I hope that you will agree with me by the time I'm done with this. 
The first reason that I disagree with this interpretation is that it doesn't fit the context of the surrounding psalms. Do you know that the psalms have a context? I was encouraged when our brother said, you've just been reading a series of psalms that treat a, a particular subject, David's problems in the wilderness. I was encouraged by that because he was pointing out the fact that those psalms have been clustered together around a common theme. In fact, in many places, most places in the psalms, it's not simply a collection of 150 poems, but they have been specifically placed in a certain order and in a certain way to influence. They have a context. We need to read the psalms in the context. Sometimes that's obvious when you come to uh, the, the songs of the sons of Asaph or the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. It's easy to recognize a context, but I want you to notice with me the context of Psalm 15. Now think about it like this. You're reading consecutively through the Psalms. That's what I'm doing from my Bible reading this year, reading consecutively through the Psalms. And so come to, to Psalm 12. All right. Now remember, the, as you're reading through, these thoughts are coming into your mind. Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Right? You're reading this. That's what's in your mind. And you turn over the page and you come to Psalm 15. David asks the question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? You've just been told that there's not one good person on the earth. And then Psalm 15 all of a sudden says, yeah, but you can qualify to dwell in God's presence by the way that you live. Psalm 16. What comes next? Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. From where does David's goodness come? From where does the goodness of the saints in whom God delights comes? Is David righteous in himself? Does he have any good that comes up to apart from God? No, he doesn't. David openly confesses the fact that whatever righteousness he has is a gift that comes from God. It's not something that he has worked on himself. Now, someone might say, but brother, Psalm 15 is about relative righteousness. It's about the deeds of a godly man as over against a hypocrite. It's not talking about absolute righteousness, about merit that God will receive. I want to say, well, that might be possible, but let's continue to look at the context and see what's going on in the surrounding Psalms. Uh, Psalm 17. Here are just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer which is not from deceitful lips, let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You've tested my heart. You've visited me in the night. You've tried me and have found nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. 
Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I've kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not sleep. Now, here, doesn't David tell us that he's righteous as he prays to God? Well, he does. But you notice how he phrases himself in verse 5? He recognizes that the only reason that he's able to live in this case, in this way, is the help that comes from the Lord. He has to pray to God for help. Because this is not his own righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes to him by the assistance, we would say, from the New Testament perspective, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Only in a limited sense is David able to speak in the way that he does. That's my first reason. The context won't allow that kind of an interpretation. The context rules against it. I have another reason that I think that it's a faulty interpretation. The, the traditional one is faulty. Think about the question and the answer. Let me read the psalm to you, parts of the psalm, in a different way. Verse 1, and then I want to skip all the way down to the final statement in verse 5. Put them together. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who does these things shall never be moved. Are these relative terms? Are they terms that reasonably we can look at and say, well, David's talking about something that's relative. It doesn't meet God's eternal standard of righteousness, but it's relative. Abide, dwell, take up residency. These are terms of permanency. That's the point that is being made at this place. These are qualifications for permanent residence in God's presence. And so I ask the question, can anyone do these things? Is there anyone on earth who can do these in such a way that God is satisfied by them? Let me give you a third reason. In verse 2, in the middle of verse 2, there's a key phrase. He who works righteousness. Now, usually when we use that, those two words, we employ them as nouns, and here it's a verb, but doesn't it jump out at you to work righteousness? We, we abhor the idea that we can be saved on the basis of works righteousness. That's when it's used as a noun. Here it's used as a verb, but the idea is the same. It's a form of do this and live. Is that how you expect to stand in God's presence? To dwell in his holy hill? To be welcomed into his temple because you've done it? And there, as a result of your doing it, you will live? It doesn't work. It doesn't fit our theology of justification by faith alone. You know, the traditional interpretation only leads to discouragement and to shame and to doubt. Because we read this psalm honestly, and we come away from it, and we say, who can abide these things? Who can fulfill these things? Who can do these things? Who may abide in the Lord's tabernacle? Who may dwell in his holy hill? And I have to honestly say, it ain't me. I can't do them. Let me provide to you a better interpretation. I don't think that David is writing this psalm to promote introspection and discouragement. I don't think that's his point. Rather, 
David is writing prophetically. He's writing to turn us away from ourselves because he does describe someone who does these things, someone who works righteousness, someone who earns the right to dwell in God's holy hill. But we need to ask the question, who is this one? David, tell us. Who is this man? Well, let me let David himself answer for us. You know, if we compare the Psalms with themselves, if we think about what David says and what he writes, he gives us a very clear answer because in other places he uses the same language of God's holy hill or the mountaintop or such. He uses that language. And who does he tell us in other places is the one who has the right to dwell in God's holy hill? Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Or a little bit before Psalm 15, if we're reading through consecutively, Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. I have set my king on my holy hill of Mount Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Now in these cases, David tells us that there is one that the Lord himself calls to take up residence with him on the holy mountain. But I want you to see one more text that really seals the deal, and that's Psalm 24. Turn over there with me. A Psalm of David. The first two verses are a claim of universal sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The language of creation, the Lord is the one who owns all of the world. This is a claim of universal sovereignty. Look at verse 3 and following. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Hold on a minute now. Wait a minute. Isn't that pretty much what we just saw in Psalm 15? Okay? Some, not the same words, but the same idea is presented to us here. David is again asking the question, who may ascend? Who may stand? And he gives us an answer. It's not exactly the same answer, but once again, the ideas are the same. Verse 4, he was clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. That probably means, not, there's not universal agreement. It's one of those Hebrew words where not positive what it means. But it probably means pause and meditate. So the question is asked again here, nine psalms later. Same question, similar answer. And David presents it to us and he says, pause and meditate. So once again, we're left who is it that can do this? But Psalm 24 proceeds and gives us explicitly the answer. Who is the one who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Think about this. Ascending to the hill of the Lord, going into God's presence. Who can do that? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, let's read the final verses of this Psalm 24. Lift up your heads. O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. 
David here is speaking to the gates of heaven as if they could hear him. What he's about to describe is so majestic that he wants the gates to open wide to receive the one who will come in. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Here is the king of glory. Psalm 15 leaves us without an identification. It answers the question, but it doesn't identify the person. Psalm 22 now gives us, I'm sorry, Psalm 24 gives us the identification of the one who may ascend God's holy hill and take up residence in his place. I think we need to understand Psalm 15 in light of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the kingship of Messiah, the Old Testament word for the New Testament word, the Christ. Psalm 15 must be understood in the same way. Jesus Christ has perfectly and completely satisfied all the acts of righteousness described in Psalm 15. He is the man of Psalm 15. That's what it's about. He is the one who abides in God's tabernacle, who dwells in God's holy hill. Who is this man? It's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has the right to dwell in God's holy hill. Now think about this. Our rapid tour through Psalm 15 in the first place turned this psalm into law. Right? Because when we applied it to ourselves, it showed us our sins and it reminded us that we, we cannot do these things. It's all about law. And the traditional interpretation turns it into a psalm about law. I want to suggest to you that it's a psalm about the gospel. And being about the gospel, it turns our attention to the Lord Jesus. Now, the, see, it works like this. When it's applied to us, if we're honest, it's law. That's what it is. It's law. It slays us. It shows us our sins. It teaches us that we can never do these things. So Psalm 15, in that, from that perspective, is law. But when we see Christ there, it's all gospel. It becomes full of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Psalm 15 is about. Yes, it helps us to see our sins, and it points us to the one who has perfectly satisfied everything that is listed in that psalm. He did it all, and he did more. He qualifies to be the man who dwells in God's holy hill. And so I come to my applications. The most important one is this. Do you see Christ here? Do you see the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you see him, do you trust in him? Because he is the man that David describes in this place. My friend, he alone is righteous. And you must find your righteousness solely in him. Christian brother and sister, don't be discouraged by the psalm because it's meant to cause you to look to Christ. You can read it honestly and say, if it applies to me directly and I'm the one, it discourages me because I can't do these things. That's the right response. But then remind yourself that there is one 
who has accomplished all of these things, and that's Christ, and you trust in him, and he will open the door for you to enter into God's presence forever and ever because he has fulfilled the Lord's righteous demands. Look at Psalm 16 and verse 8. David understood this point. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Do you remember that, how the psalm ended? 15 ended? He who does these things shall never be moved. Christ will never be moved. If I place my faith in him, I will never be moved because he won't be moved because God receives him. Now, my friend... If you have been under the false impression that you can work your way to the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, I have to tell you, you've been deceived. And this psalm opens, shines the light on your deception. But it's self-deception. So I want to ask you, in the light of Psalm 15, in the light of the fact that if you are honest with yourself, you can say, I've never done these things, I can't do these things. Then I ask you this, why don't you trust in Jesus Christ alone? Because he did these things. And if you trust in him, his righteousness will be credited to your account. The technical theological word is imputation. He died to satisfy the wrath of God against the penalty of sin. He lived so that his righteousness might be given to us, and it's freely given. There's no reason for you right now not to place your faith in him, and I want to urge you to do that. Young people, children, I want you to recognize, I want you to hear that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you trust in him, you may dwell in God's holy hill. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Trust in him and depend upon him. So the psalm is law and the psalm is gospel. But there's another way to look at Psalm 15. And we would make a mistake if we walked away from it without noticing this third way. Now, because I said that we can't do these things, someone might say, well, okay, I don't have to worry about them and fall prey to a bad doctrine called antinomianism. It says, it doesn't matter how I live. You cannot live in such a way that you will merit God's pleasure. You won't find your way to heaven by your actions. But because you've been forgiven, because he has given you the grace of eternal life, the Bible calls you to live a holy life, according to what Psalm 15 says. It becomes a psalm of sanctification, not so that I would receive God's favor, but because he has given it to me, it helps me to define the way that I ought to live. Because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to look at Psalm 15 and say, I want to live righteously in this world according to its principles because Christ is the man of Psalm 15 and he's given me eternal life. He's granted to me the forgiveness of sins. As a result of that, I want to live holily. I want to think and speak the truth. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to be one who despises 
the, the wicked. How's it put? A vile person. And who honors those who are righteous. I want to be able to discern between good and evil. And above all else, I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. So it's law, and it's gospel, and it's about sanctification. Isn't it wonderful how the word of God works? One psalm in three different ways to help us. The first time we read it, we say, oh, that's not me. The second time we read it, when we see Christ, we say, God gloriously has given me his son. And the third time we read it, we can look at it and say, because he has given me his son, this is how he wants me to live in this world. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So my friend, do not trust your own righteousness. You will fail. But in him, you may abide in God's holy hill. Who did David see as he watched the throng ascend to the tabernacle on God's holy hill? By faith, David saw Jesus Christ leading his people to the worship of God. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, with great thanksgiving, we bow before you because we have been taught that we cannot earn your favor. We've been shown the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called to live a life of holiness. O Lord, thank you for your word and for its wonder and its beauty. Thank you for our Savior who lived a life of holiness and died to satisfy the punishment for our sins. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who moves in our hearts. Would you work in each one of us this day, right now, so that we might express our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank the Lord for our Savior Jesus Christ by whose sacrifice we can approach that holy hill now and forever in eternity with our Lord. Would you please stand and receive the benediction and then we will join in singing the doxology. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.